You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, South Korea agrees to compensate wartime victims of Japanese forced labour, but the backlash has been swift. Also ahead. Israelis take to the streets for the ninth week running to protest Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reforms. And our senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco will join us for a look at some of today's international newspapers. Fernando. Hello, Marcus. Today I ask if the high-speed rail between Sao Paulo and Rio is finally happening. Plus, be careful with the lionfish. All that's right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. South Korea's government has announced a plan to resolve a long-running dispute on compensating people who were forced to work in Japanese factories and mines during the Second World War. The proposal has faced an immediate backlash from South Korea's main opposition party. Many Korean victims have also criticized the plan, saying it doesn't hold Japan accountable. Joining me for more is Peter Landers, Tokyo bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the program and good Good evening. Peter, could you first tell us how big news has this been in Japan? This is a big deal for Japan because it's been squabbling with South Korea for off and on for 10 years, I would say, over a variety of issues. There's a long list of them. This is only one of them. But it was probably the most serious issue between the two companies because South Korea was threatening basically to seize Japanese assets to pay plaintiffs in South Korea who were involved with forced labor in World War II. So the plan announced today uh, prevents Japan from having to directly pay money to these victims or their families. How much more can you, can you tell us about the details of this plan? There's going to be a South Korean fund uh, that will get donations from South Korean companies that apparently that apparently those companies that benefited from a 1965 agreement between Japan and South Korea that did involve compensation by Japan, but that compensation didn't go to individual victims. It, it helped some companies in South Korea at the time. And uh, those are some of the companies that may be contributing to this fund. And then the fund will in turn sort of settle the, the court ordered payments to uh, the victims and families, again, from uh, World War II era forced labor. Can you tell us more about the reaction to this proposal in Japan? How much has been heard from the Japanese government, for example? Japan is saying it welcomes the deal, and it is offering a little bit in return to South Korea, although perhaps not as much as the the, the victims and their families were hoping for. Uh, Japan is saying it reiterates or, or stands by apologies that it has previously expressed for its conduct during the colonial era when Japan was the, you know, the ruler of the Korean Peninsula from 1910 to 1945. That's one point. And also, Japan put some export controls on South Korea in uh, in 2019. Japan, Japanese companies supply materials that are essential to making uh, semiconductors, and basically as a tit for tat. Although they deny it, uh, Japan said, "Okay, you 
uh, will have more difficulty getting these materials from Japan. And now, uh, as in return for South Korea's uh, plan to resolve this forced labor issue, Japan is saying, well, we'll lift these export controls. So considering what this plan consists of, it may be understandable that some some people in South Korea are saying that this approach is wrong because it doesn't really make Japan accountable. What is the feeling in Tokyo about that, maybe about taking responsibility of what happened a long time ago? Tokyo's position has always been that this 1965 agreement between Japan and South Korea resolved all claims dating to the colonial period, 1910 to 1945. So they say, we talked about this in the 1960s, we resolved it, the agreement is completely airtight, it does not allow for any further claims against us. That's uh, Japan's position. Uh, But I think, again, the victims and their families in South Korea would say, well, we never got any money from that 1965 deal. We still have the right to uh, ask for our own direct payments from Japan. And that's why they're dissatisfied with today's agreement, because uh, there are two Japanese companies in particular, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and Nippon Steel, which were both active in World War II era. And what the uh, plaintiffs in this case are saying is we want money directly from those two companies. And that's what the court has ordered. How much potential does this agreement now have to actually significantly improve the quite often nice relations between Tokyo and Seoul? I think for all the uh, criticisms and difficulties that uh, I just mentioned, I think it does have great potential to improve the relations. And President Yoon of South Korea, who took office last year, has really pushed forward with this and uh, amid domestic opposition in South Korea, uh, I think... You know, the growing threat from China is a factor. Uh, the U.S. is certainly encouraging these two allies in Asia-Pacific, its two most important allies in the Asia-Pacific region, to cooperate more together. They've begun to do that under President Yoon, and so I think this is a milestone step. How optimistic are you about the future? Do you think there will be some more obstacles on the way? I think there will be some obstacles, and there are also a lot of other issues. There's even a disputed little rock in the uh, Sea of Japan that uh, South Korea controls, but Japan wants back, uh, and many other disputes. So I I think it's always going to be a little bit rocky, uh, and I think there's also a risk if the leaders change in South Korea or Japan that maybe a future leader would say, well, I'm not going to stand by that agreement. But uh, for the moment, I, I think it is a milestone step that allows these two countries to cooperate uh, in the areas where uh, the U.S. and they themselves have wanted to cooperate but have been held back. Absolutely. And just finally, Peter, if you look into the future, if you think that this announcement is going to improve relations between these two countries, and obviously there are some issues still to be tackled, but in the future, if Japan and South Korea could work more closely together, how much untapped potential do you see over there? How much would that benefit both the nations? I think it would be greatly beneficial. I'm just thinking, you know, for example, tourism going both ways. Uh, a lot of Koreans visited here before the pandemic and uh, vice versa, Japanese going to Korea. And I think it helps uh, the U.S. in general in the, in the Asia-Pacific region. If its allies are all working on the same team, it helps uh, the U.S. Reta- restrain China from adventurism. Now, we don't know what China has planned for Taiwan, but... Uh, certainly, China would fear would feel more emboldened to uh, try what it wants to try if it if it knows that 
U.S. allies are divided and fighting with each other. Whereas if the U.S. allies are united, working together, uh, having, for example, trilateral or multilateral uh, military drills, uh, then I think China feels a little more uh, chastened. Thank you very much for your insights, Pete. Uh, that was Pete uh, Landers, Tokyo Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal. It's 12.08 here in London. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Military and national security officials in the United States have become concerned that a particular type of heavy machinery manufactured in China and used on U.S. soil may be used as a tool of espionage. Cranes produced in China and used in U.S. ports are said to have sensors that allow them to track provenance and destination moved via this machinery between cargo ships and shore. Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu has visited Mariupol to inspect his country's reconstruction efforts of the Ukrainian port city, which was badly damaged during a two-month-long siege at the outset of the war. During his visit, Russian media said he was shown a medical centre, a rescue centre and a new micro-district of 12 five-storey residential buildings. Iran's supreme leader has said that if a series of suspected poisonings at girls' schools are proven to be deliberate, the culprits should be sentenced to death for committing unforgivable crimes. Authorities have acknowledged suspected attacks at more than 50 schools across 21 of Iran's 30 provinces since November. Transport groups have launched a week-long nationwide strike in the Philippines to protest the government's modernization program to phase out old public utility vehicles, including the iconic jeepneys. Some school classes were called off in and around Manila, while the government deployed state vehicles to ferry those stranded by the protest action. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Lillian. To Estonia next, where Prime Minister Kaja Kallas's centre-right reform party has won the country's general election by a wide margin. Reform won over 31% of the vote, with the right-wing runner-up Bar Party Ekre getting only about about half of that. Joining me from Tallinn for more is Breed Hobemäki, the editor-in-chief of Estonia's Postimes newspaper. Breed, thank you for joining us today. Could you first tell us more about this election result? How expected was it? Were there any surprises? Yes, I think that surprise was that the Reform Party or the Liberal Party then uh, had uh, had so many seats. They were expected to win, but the contender right-wing Ekre party was actually very, very active. And um, lots of um, analysts said that maybe even the right-wing party could win the elections, but uh, it didn't happen so. And the reason was that um, Estonia has mixed uh, um, system. Um, part of the votes are um, votes which are given uh, physically and the other part are electronic votes and half of the over half of the votes are given electronically through computers and exactly the computer based votes were those uh, who were who brought the liberal reform party to the to the victory so can we presume that those people voting digitally were in general younger and more educated Yes, that's true. Well, what does this mean for the future of Estonia then? What were the big election themes this time around? Obviously, we can safely assume that the war in Ukraine is something that is in everyone's minds, but were any other topics discussed? 
Um, I would say that the uh, war in Ukraine is the main question, which was not very much discussed during the campaign because uh, all, mostly all the pol political parties agree on the security issues. So uh, they were not uh, discussed widely. But um, as for Estonia, we, uh, uh, the Prime Minister Kaya Kallas has been a very outspoken and very widely seen as a forerunner of East European interests of, uh, in the security situation. For, as for Estonia, uh, the situation is existential because we are bordering with Russia and uh, Russia during uh, occupation 1940 and 1944 has done all those atrocities that the world learns now in Bucha and Mariupol. So we, our, our people, uh, older people, uh, parents, grandparents, they have seen it. And uh, so the people are very concerned that uh, we have a very strong sense of uh, how to conduct and how to defend ourselves with the help of NATO in Estonia. I think it's also interesting looking at what is different about these parties is that the right-wing ECRE party that got, what, about 16% of the vote, they have been suggesting that not so much military equipment should be given to Ukraine. Tell us more about that. Yes, they, they are openly said that they do not want... Uh, more uh, Ukrainian immigrants. Estonia has absorbed uh, over 50,000 Ukrainian immigrants and we have only 1.3 uh, people living in Estonia. Um, uh, as for uh, the military equipment, I think that ECRE um, uh, party um, uh, has in mind that some kind of different uh, ways of uh, different uh, technical equipment should be used more um, in Estonia. But basically, they do not have a, a very different view. But what is uh, important that uh, they are um, quite uh, anti-EU, um, so they do not openly say that they want Estonia to leave EU. But um, this topic often comes up if you, if you talk to them. Now, Brit, who did the Russian-speaking minority vote for in this election? The Russian-speaking minority was, was, uh, um, was usually presented by a center party which has uh, um, had lots of uh, Russian votes. But um, due to the changes in center party, they have lost uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, Russian voices. But at the same time, at the eastern part of uh, Estonia, in those places when Estonia is bordering uh, with Russia, there are, we, we have seen a rise of new Putinist-minded uh, politicians uh, who gathered quite a lot of um, uh, votes, but they did not get a seat in the parliament. So, so they, but, but, but they are in, uh, they are still there. One of them is somewhere in uh, Donbass in Russia. And uh, this is a very interesting question, how Estonian uh, security officials will deal with those persons who openly go to, um, to Russia on the occupied territories of Ukraine and coming back uh, 
praise uh, Russian armed forces. There's quite a lot to deal when it comes to that issue, sounds like that. Um, Breed, tell us more about how you think this war has been affecting this election. Do you think the results might have been different had there been not that invasion Russia launched on Ukraine? Yes, I think that the results would be different because um, the Prime Minister Kajatallas uh, from Reform Party has been uh, very successful in the um, in Europe and in the uh, well whole Western world, um, telling uh, what are the views of uh, Eastern Europe. So the, the the basic message has been that uh, the um, Baltic states and Poland has all the way for uh, tens of the years telling that Russia could not be trusted. They could not be trusted. But uh, nobody actually wanted to listen because there were, were different kinds of interests to hold. And now we have the, uh, most of the European leaders, starting from uh, um, Chancellor Scholz to uh, von Leyen from European Commission, saying that, yes, uh, Baltics were right. Uh, Russia was not to be trusted. And um, as um, Prime Minister Kaya Kallas has, has got a, a huge uh, amount of coverage in Western press, in uh, big newspapers, uh, TV. So um, she's a very a clear leader on uh, security issues in Estonia. And as I said, that uh, this security is existential to Estonia. It means that she and her reform party are very, very popular. Absolutely. And just finally, Preet, how do you think this election result will shape Estonia in the next few years? What do you expect from the future? I think that the Estonians can be very uh, satisfied with, with that, that uh, Estonia will go on on, uh, uh, on the course we have now. We are focusing on our um, security, which is the most important thing, and that we uh, go on further on the liberal way of building our state. Breed Herbemaki, the editor-in-chief of Estonia's Postimes newspaper there. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is 14.18 in Tallinn, 12.18 here in London. You are with Monocle24. The concierge from Monocle brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge Program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners.
You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. In Israel, protests continue against judicial reform plans by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Dozens of Israeli Air Force pilots have now said they will boycott military training in protest at the government's plans. Thousands of Israelis have taken part in mass rallies since January. Daniela Pellet is managing editor for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting and she covers Israel Closely. Welcome to the program. Daniela, Daniela, shall we just first recap a little bit? Why are Benjamin Netanyahu and his government so convinced in pushing for this judicial reform? Well, uh, partly because it will serve some of their far-right-wing ideological purposes and also partly because this will give uh, government ministers and senior figures immunity for prosecution. This will look great for Netanyahu, who, who is... Uh, has numerous charges of, of corruption against him. And it also fits with this rather illiberal ideology that the justice system is too powerful, has too much independence. So this would um, seriously curtail the power of the uh, of the justice system. And Israel already has very few checks and balances in its constitutional makeup, meaning that it would be even more vulnerable to abuse by governments, this government and successive governments. How much do these plans have support when it comes to the Israeli public? Well, there's a clear majority who opposes them, about 60% um, when it comes to, to various polls, partly because they think it will, um, quite rightly, that will damage the democratic institutions. Also, for more pragmatic purposes, they think it will harm um, the country's economy. And these unprecedented protests have been going on for nine straight weeks now. Um, so there is serious opposition and including opposition from diaspora Jewish communities and indeed a previously staunchly pro-Israel and pro-Netanyahu figures in the US such as Alan Dershowitz. And the latest development is obviously that, as I mentioned already, dozens of Israeli Air Force pilots have said that they will boycott military training as a protest at the government's plans. Obviously, the number is not big, but but these pilots, obviously, they have a huge symbolic significance. Do you think Netanyahu is gradually getting worried about his plans? And do do you think we can expect seeing some concessions being made? Well, I think you're right to note how significant this um, uh, threat to, to refuse uh, services. I mean, the, the Israeli army is undoubtedly the most trusted institution uh, amongst Jewish citizens of the state in every circumstance. And the idea of refusing to serve is, is, is a huge taboo. And so the idea that elite pilots are refusing to serve would have massive impact. I think there is a certain amount of, of wobble coming from, from Netanyahu. Recently, there was a story leaked that um, he was considering softening the proposals, but decided not to because of threatened resignations from his government. I mean, to me, you know, as a cynical journalist, it seems likely that those stories came from Netanyahu's office himself. He wants to be seen as the reasonable person. He's, he's often considered himself or put forward this image of him as the adult in the room when it comes to... Um, Israeli politics. But the fundamental problem is that discarding these reforms means that his coalition collapses. It's extremely unlikely, unthinkable really, that Netanyahu, the consummate political survivor, would willingly put himself at risk of that. Daniela, what do you expect from the future? How can Netanyahu try to address this issue and bring more stability to Israel? 
Yeah, the, the, well, one thing that I think has precipitated all these protests is the speed at which this is this is going on. I mean, this has just been a couple of months, and and the debate, which perhaps should take years, is just being pushed forward. I think people are jockeying for their um, political uh, survival. The other issue is that you know it, it's been very intense, so time may make a difference, and I don't mean that in a good way. Unprecedented protests. Um, rarely achieve a great deal. The popular sentiment is there, but are people willing to to carry on and to persist? Uh, While others are making the argument that this is a democratic decision, the government was voted in, and they should be allowed to make make the decisions. I think fundamentally the problem is that Israeli democracy is in itself flawed, not least due to the ongoing military occupation of of the Palestinians. So I don't think that this uh, upholding of what might be considered democratic norms uh, in Western countries is necessarily appreciated by many citizens of Israel. Exactly. And just finally, Daniela, what do you think, so far we've been talking about what this means domestically, but what do you think all this, these protests running for ninth week now, what do they mean for Israel's standing internationally? I think Israel, you know, there's been a lot of fear-mongering essentially by the left and, you know, liberals in Israel saying if Israel doesn't mend its undemocratic ways, if Israel doesn't end the occupation, then it's going to become an international prior. This hasn't happened uh, over decades and decades. Israel is doing pretty well diplomatically. It's doing very well economically. So I don't think, uh, despite the, the justifiable panic, really, of of many um, Israelis and many supporters of Israel, that there's going to be a huge impact on its diplomatic status right now, especially with so much going on in the world, that is to say, Ukraine. Daniela Pellet there. Thank you very much for joining us today. You are with The Briefing. And finally, in the program, we'll have a look at what's making headlines around the world. Joining me in the studio is Monaco Sohn, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, how are you today? Very good, Marcus. I have a nice selection of stories for you. I noticed a couple of newspapers and then something else as well. We'll be looking at that thing a bit later in the program. But what do you have first? We start with Stadut São Paulo. And this is a story that I'm kind of sceptical about it, Marcus. Basically, it's about the high-speed rail between São Paulo and Rio. I mean, this has been an ongoing thing in, in in, in the Brazilian transport kind of news because it was supposed to be ready for the World Cup back in 2014 but then it's been cancelled. It, it's a really difficult thing to actually put through and the reason I'm talking again about this uh, that finally the project received authorization for the planning, construction and operation uh, to the cost of about 9 billion euros. Uh, of course we don't know further details as well. I personally think it would be a wonderful thing between both cities. They are very... The, you know that the, the flight route between Sao Paulo and Rio is one of the busiest in the world, actually. Uh, and I think it would be quite interesting if we had that speed rail. And let's remember, Brazil is not really a rail country. We mm. don't have many of them. If we do, they're very specific. They don't actually count, uh, you know, th- that much. Uh, but, you know, is it going to happen? How controversial is it now? How many, how many people are against it? What do you think? Well, I don't think there's many people against. I think it's just people, might they might laugh when they read about it because, uh, you know, 
there's been so many plans in the past, but there's a difference here. Uh, this company finally they open to international developers. So there are companies from China, from Spain. They might be interested. In the past, I think the government was going to be a bit more kind of controlling the project, but this is a hundred percent private. Perhaps this might be the difference from the previous ones. Also, I think it's great for Brazil's reputation internationally if this happens. It's going to be big news if you guys get a high-speed rail connection between these two major cities. I think it's wonderful because when you drive between Sao Paulo and Rio, it's between six to seven hours. There's lots of 440 traffic. 440 kilometers is the distance I just checked. Yes, yes. It, 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 it's, it's difficult. I mean, of course, if you're on holiday, that's fine. But if you're on a business trip and the flight tickets between Sao Paulo and Rio, they can be prohibitively expensive as well. Mm. Well, something totally different then. Your story is also from Brazil, but we are not talking about huge infrastructure projects anymore. We are talking about fish. <laughs> fish, and that's dangerous, Marcos. That's a story from UOL, a very interesting report by the journalist Carlos Madeiro. So basically, the lionfish is invading the north coast uh, of Brazil. It's an invasive species. It came from the Caribbean. Uh, and it's interesting, Marcos, first time the fish was spotted was back in December 2020. Uh, and the first one they spotted was only 14 centimeters long. Uh, and now they're finding that they are 38 centimeters long as well. So it's really becoming... I, I even have some props, Marcos. Look, this is the Brazil map for you. And the dark green areas is the areas where uh, the species are, uh, mm -hmm. you know, attacking. And they're, of course, they're affecting the habitat, they're affecting native species. And even if you trample them, they're poisonous too. So you have to be careful. How concerned are you about this story yourself? It's concerning. You know, I would be a bit scared with the lionfish. They look kind of beautiful, but you can see that they're a bit poisonous animals. And it's a shame as well for our native species too. Well, finally, you brought with you, this is not a newspaper, this is a magazine, it's called A Rabbit's Foot, and I understand your last pick. It's my Story last pick for today is about this magazine, partly. Because I wanted to talk about film magazines. Of course, it's Oscar season, you know, I host The Stack, and I've been noticing there's so many cool new titles on film, not only the traditional ones. And Rabbit's Foot is a classic example. As you can say, it's a very hefty uh, title. I believe more than 300 pages. Uh, it looks beautiful. It was uh, founded by Charles Finch. He is, uh, you know, an entrepreneur as well. And Marcus, he's known for hosting the best Oscar parties mm -hmm. uh, in Los Angeles too. So the man knows a lot about film. Uh, and I've interviewed him for The Stack. And I think this issue was uh, released right in time for the Oscars. Excellent. The power of film. Just finally, Fernando, have you come across any, any other marginal magazines recently? I remember a few weeks ago we talked about this publication you had discovered. It was called something like Divorce Well. Well, That's quite uh, niche. Anything but, else you've but, seen But recently? maybe sticking to the world of cinema, there's <laughs> another one called Cinema du Luc magazine, uh. which is about about film and style. So, I mean, if you're a film lover, you're in for a treat if you go to the newsstand. Amazing. That was Monaco's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett. Our researchers were Monica Lillis and Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our studio manager was Adam Heaton. I am Marcos Hippim. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>